0: This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast, and I'm super excited to be speaking with Jeff Weinberg, Managing Director, M&A, and Activism Advisory and Head of the Retail Shoulder Advisory Practice at Moro Sodali, a top proxy solicitation and advisory firm. Jeff is based out of New York, and he worked as an attorney at Weill Godshill in the firm's M&A practice, and he was also a Senior Managing Director at another proxy solicitation firm before joining Moro in January. Over the years, Jeff worked on really some very high-profile activist situation, including Kroger's versus Carl Icahn and Carl Icahn's ultimately unsuccessful ESG fight, Procter and Gamble versus Nelson Peltz, you know, one of the biggest proxy fights ever, and Blue Cora versus EnCora. Plus, on the activism side, he advised Starboard in their live person effort and G in their proxy fight at Methanex and many more high-profile activist situations. Welcome, Jeff, and thanks for taking the time.
1: Thanks, Ron. Great to be here. Uh, as they say on sports radio, you
0: know, longtime listener, first time caller. Uh, although I do have
1: to admit, you know, like most other podcasts, I'm used to hearing your voice at about two x speed, so this may take a second to adjust. Hey.
0: Uh, well, I really appreciate that you listen to the Activist Podcast, and uh, excited to chat with you today about a variety of subjects. And I definitely want to get into the Morris Adali MS40 Activism Ownership Analysis Report, which I find quite interesting, and I always scour it every. Time it comes out, but first I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your also work as a retail shareholder advisory practice. So, I know I'm just wondering if there's any sort of trends in retail investors that you might want to point to. Yeah, you know the the perception I've had over the years, or the perception people have, proxy solicitors have suggested over the years, is that retail investors don't vote, or if they do vote, they vote with management. I mean, this was retail investors that were kind of ex employees were a big part of this Procter and Gamble. Fight with Nelson Peltz and Tryon. And though I, there was this one case recently, uh, Sarissa, contest with this activist investor, Sarissa, an official heart drug treatment maker called Ameren that resulted in a big win for the activist, in part because its large retail investor base. And even though the proxy solicitors, the ISSs and Glass Lewis's, recommended for the incumbent board. So I'm just, I guess I wanted to get your overall thoughts. You know, what trends do you see in retail investor voting in activist situations?
1: Yeah, and and thanks. I mean, it's interesting, right? So, I I started kind of this retail practice in in my previous firm, focusing on meme stocks and SPACs for 85% retail, and all anyone can talk about is the retail vote. And, And you know, we really saw the benefit of of engaging with retail and treating them, you know, like human beings, and not just hitting them with calls and blind mailings and trying to understand their concerns and have management talk to them and things like that. And you know, maybe I'm biased, but but I think we're seeing this move into activism now as well, right? And so. To your point about the PNGs versus kind of the new retail, I view it as these two different worlds. You have your old kind of registered retail, like the PNGs, the world that were very management friendly and you could assume and you can count on. And you have kind of the new retail that is much more online, much more fast money and open to ideas, to put it mildly, right? So I think we saw a little bit of in 2023 and I think we'll see more to come, but small and to even some mid-cap companies, a lot of these companies are down substantially from their COVID highs, you know, I think 70, 80% from a rally. And they have very large retail bases that have effectively become bag holders. And I think activists are starting to wake up to this and understanding it's, it's not hard to get control of these boards. They just don't know what to do when they get it. But, you know, I, I've seen it firsthand, right? The conspiracy theories, the misinformation about dark pools, imminent short squeezes. I've seen elaborate models as to why the stocks can go up 40x in the next week, in the next two weeks. But in the activism world, I think it's this simpler thought, right? Like the often wrong perception of a greedy, lazy board and executive team. They're paying themselves all this money while they, the retail shareholder, have lost most of their investment. And it's not hard to understand that mindset. So with that, you know, we're seeing angry shareholders running untraditional campaigns think, you know, no fight deck, no ISS meeting, no plan. They don't, you know, they don't care if they don't get ISS. It's not even a feature, it's not on the radar. And they're running this relatively on the cheap, right? Through the universal proxy card. And instead of, you know, repeated mailings that can cost a lot of money, you know, you're focusing on social media and you know, kind of getting that network of folks that all talk and communicate to not only participate, but they're persuaded in the opposite way. So it's something I'm focusing on working with companies trying to focus on what this looks like in the off season, right? And, and the same way, you know, every advisor tells, you know, tells issuers to talk to their institutional investors in the off season, hear their concerns. What can we change? You know, these may not be the same concerns and these may not be as evil as. Easy to disclose in a proxy statement, but they shouldn't be strangers, right? So it shouldn't just be talking to the largest 20 retail shareholders or the largest 20 most influential retail shareholders just when you need something from them. And, and so I think it's an interesting space that, that will continue to grow. And you know, I think we're on the forefront of it.
0: Okay. So this is, this is fascinating. I've been kind of waiting for this to happen for a while. So I, I guess, are you suggesting that uh, ang, you know, these angry shareholders at these companies with large retail bases are actually able to get retail investors to vote? in those situations or, you know, that this is something we might see more of in the future, kind of activists mobilizing retail investors at companies with large retail shelter bases?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think it comes down to, you know, what's the main reason why you typically don't think retail votes? It's apathy, right? I mean, there's definitely some logistics to it too of, you know, finding your control number or getting it in the mail, things like that, but a lot of it's apathy. And so if you're removing that apathy by taking a lot of angry folks and telling them, Hey, I, I have a solution that's going to make you money. It, it tends to increase participation a lot more than your traditional, you know, get out the vote campaign from a from a company asking retail to vote.
0: And it's interesting how social media, I guess, is a platform where a lot of retail investors can access kind of information, whether it's correct or not, from an you know an angry activist investor. Or and I guess the company needs to respond.
1: Yeah. And think about it. I mean, again, to think about it from that perspective, right? Think, you know, companies, everything they do has to be you know polite above board. You have to file things that you do, you know, in, in that world where you angry retail shareholders can make a lot of noise. And, and it's how you respond to that without that messaging getting out of control, whether it's on Reddit, stock StockTwits, you know, whatever. But they can dominate that message while you're left, you know, trying to figure out how do you respond? Do you respond? And if you do respond, you know, it, it may have to be filed.
0: hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a a difficult scenario for some of these companies (laughs) that definitely need to to work on. So, uh, yeah, we're looking for more of that kind of uh, activism in the not-too-distant future. So now I wanted to shift gears a bit to your report, which, as I mentioned at the outset, you know, I find fascinating and has lots of interesting tidbits on activists. And so I guess now shifting from kind of the retail angry shareholders to the top-tier activists. Tell us a little bit about this report. So this is called the MS-40 Activist Ownership Analysis. Let's start with what the MS-40 is. I assume that that's uh, Morosadali-40. So it's kind of a, a, a proprietary <laughs> kind of analysis of the top activists?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, so you know, it's it's a report that our Capital Markets Intelligence Group, you know, that's what we call our Stock Surveillance Group, they put out every quarter with the golden to narrow down, you know, the pool of global investors to what we consider the top 40 activists. So, you know, as you mentioned, it's a proprietary model, you know, including some subjective criteria like reputation, tactics, focus, and then some objective criteria like uh, and quantitative items, you know, number of campaigns, board seats, and, and size of investments.
0: All right, cool. And so you basically take the top 40 activists, and I guess you look at their campaigns over the last, I want to say since 2018, and you decide whether to include an activist on the list. I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of whether you only look at kind of public campaigns or campaigns that have made public where the activist has agitated publicly, or you also look at private situations? You know, a lot of activism, as you and I both know, takes place behind the scenes. But, you know, for the purpose of your data, are you looking at the public uh, activism campaigns?
1: Yeah, so, so it has to be reportable, right? So we're not including any engagements from our clients that never went public or anything like that. You know, this may be an activist situation that was private, maybe that we worked on, but it, it has to have led to a public recognition, you know, whether it's a press release, a filing, reporting, things like that, it, it has to be public um, in some form. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's helpful, right? It, it's helpful for both clients. It's helpful for advisors. I personally find it helpful. Uh, you know, often it's, you know, you see the evolution in the space as like in different investing strategies are coming aboard. You often can understand the new names that are popping up, you know, sometimes quietly. You often hear the Elliot's, the icons, the Starboard's, but this small cap, mid cap activists that are a threat to most companies that may not get, you know, the press that those folks do. And then I also think it's interesting to see, Wolfpack activism, right? Everybody loves to talk about it right now, but it is a nice way to really feature that you know, every quarter and understand where there may be different activists swarming on a few companies.
0: Yeah, I know that, notice that word swarm has become more popular than wolfpack. It's kind of, they're transitioning from wolfpack to swarm, but it's basically the same thing. So, yeah, so there's one part of your report where you talk about the uh, MS40 ownership concentration page, which that sounds like you were just talking about that a little bit here, which I always thought, also thought was quite interesting. And so basically you kind of look at situations where a number of your MS40 top activist investors are agitating at the same company. For example, Fidelity National Information Service, a company we've written about at the deal, a fair bit in the activism there. I think six of your MS40 activists are on that list and uh, advanced micro devices, also six. So anyways, tell me, so that's basically the the page where you guys kind of look at and aggregate and see where there's a large number of activists agitating at the same company.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, everyone saw Salesforce with, you know, Elliott Starboard Value Act, Disney with you know, Triumph Third Point, um, you know, I think of eBay a few years ago with Starboard and Elliot again, but, you know, it's focusing on the swarms because it, it matters both to activists and to companies, right? And it makes sense from an activist standpoint because they may end up at similar targets, you know, as they model out potential investments, whether it's, Whatever inputs you're putting in, it's market and performance, M&A opportunity, obvious divestitures, bloating, things like that. There's only so many targets, and especially as you look at some of the bigger activists, you know, where a small cap or even a mid cap target really doesn't move a needle. It just makes a lot of sense that they're all going to show up. But what I find fascinating is, you know, you're seeing different investment thesis as they get there, different goals from each activist. And for issuers, you know, it's a well-advised team. They're, they're modeling out the expected outcomes of votes based on certain assumptions. And all of a sudden, you have a number of shareholders who are showing up with the express purpose of letting you know that they want change. And they combined have a very formidable voting position or they are now, you know, different tactical pieces that you need to figure out whether satisfying one satisfies them all or provides you enough protection. So it's getting a lot of attention. I don't always think it's on purpose. Um, You know, if it is, then you have a lot of 13D issues. But it's obviously making news. And I, I think that with the way certain companies have performed since COVID, it makes sense that you're going to continue to see a handful of activists show up at the same companies.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. We've written about kind of activists uh, yeah, and they're never working together or uh, in, in unison, so that's why they don't have to file the thirteen altogether, of course, right? When they own over five percent, but uh, but it is interesting they should kind of show up. But it's and it's true that in some cases they have different cost basis and therefore have different strategies. One time the activist wanted to see the company sell, then the next time the other activist comes in and uh, has a new campaign to see the company sell, and the first activist maybe he's not so keen on seeing it sell itself because the stock has fallen down so much that even a massive premium would not be a profitable outcome for him. So they're kind of looking at it as a restructuring situation. So yeah, I've definitely seen situations. And I believe even at at, uh, Salesforce, from what I heard from the different activists, they had different goals and outcomes, some of which wanted you know uh, some divestitures, other of which just wanted them to stop making acquisitions. So it's definitely quite interesting. And when you see large groups of activists, it's definitely you know, more of a challenge for the company. Okay, so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how you get data for this. Um, I'm curious if they're U.S.-based, and I suspect that the data is partly based on the 13F positions, I say, because I think that the report comes out not too long after you know, uh, activists disclose their quarterly positions in 13F filings, which come out, of course, 45 days after the end of the quarter. Just tell us a little bit. Is it all U.S. activists? Or are there some foreign activists involved?
1: Yeah, so, so that's right, right. So the report is, is largely, partly based on 13F data. You know, as the quarter end, um, the MS40. You know, it's primarily U.S.-based, but about 10% of them are global. Think, you know, TCI, Oasis. But we rely on third party data providers for global holdings, but it must be public data again. And, and you know, it makes the most sense to use it around that 13F cycle as we update it, because a lot of it is coming from that 13F data. And, you know, as you know, you know, you're interested in it. Advisors are interested in it. Companies are interested. Everyone has that expectation of this is when your new ownership reports are going to come out. This is when you're seeing new, um, activists disclose new positions and things like that.
0: Okay. One page that I really thought was interesting. I've never seen anything like it before, which I, you know, it's, it's, you always think of, you know, activists, if they buy a 5% stake or an 8% stake, this is this huge position. But a lot of times activists are buying what appear to be minuscule stakes, you know, in terms of percentage of shares outstanding, but in terms of a dollar position, you know, these are huge positions. And you have this one page where you talk about the largest new positions from a dollar value point of view. So a lot of activists doesn't get picked up to the thirteen D thirteen G filings thirteen D as you file when you have five percent or more of a company. But you know, for example, your report noted that Third Point bought a two hundred eighty two million stake in Taiwan Semiconductor, though it's only a two point four five percent of shares outstanding. But it is a huge position for Third Point to buy such a big stake. So tell us about that, page. Why you guys decided to do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, one by reporting U.S. dollars, it's a clear comparison of the investment value activists are using multiple techniques to accumulate positions and using separate exchanges. So, you know, we've seen over the past five years, active engagements, you know, whether it's focusing on board states or value creation at 50 companies who are not headquartered in the U S where three chances are filed by MS40 activists. And, you know, of the 500 active engagements since 2018, 25% of which, you know, they're, they're non-US headquarters. So I think it's helpful to kind of get that global perspective, but to your point, you know, when you see the dollar numbers of the outstanding shares, I think it's helpful from an investment view as well, right? Instead of just understanding that someone may be buying up 6% of a company, well, you know, if it only makes up X percent of their portfolio, it's a very different story than, than to your point, a $300 million stake and things of that nature.
0: Yeah. And the other th- the other data point I like to look at is what is the position relative to the overall portfolio of the activist? It's sometimes these kind of 2%, 1% stakes represent 25% of the activist's total assets under management. So. You know that they're kind of engaging privately or, you know, this is a big, important position and they have, probably have some big thesis because that's what they do. They, you know, put together these big thesis and they buy these stakes. So,
1: you know, and we definitely take that into consideration as well. You're advising companies, right? You know, what does this mean for that activist? Is this one of many or is this, you know, one of few? So I agree. It's very, very important.
0: Okay. So large buys are also interesting, as you would expect, many of these big allocations come with activist campaigns, either public or private. And then, for example, we saw, near the top of your list, Starboard at Algonquin Power. This is clearly an M&A effort. So tell us a little bit more about the large bias.
1: Yeah, look, I'm not going to comment on a specific situation like okay. Algonquin, okay. But, but generally, I think it's not guaranteed, but I think when these names pop up, you know, it gets folks' attention, right? So activists with large reputations, they're able to use those reputations as quietly or as loud as they want. Certain activists will tell you directly what they want to do and the consequences if you do not comply. Others, you know, just show up with a large buy and a well-advised board knows that these reputations can mean a lot. And so a lot can go instead. One thing to remember with this reporting is that it's all based on public data, right? And activists are getting smarter and smarter every year in finding ways to avoid this disclosure. So... Some of that is via the investments themselves I Think derivatives, largely swaps to obscure the accumulated holdings. Sometimes it's via confidential filings. But like the cliche in our world is saying that stock is an art, not a science. And so, you know, what stock watch is provided a bunch of other folks provide it. They don't have the solicitors, a bunch of uh, NASDAQ, but it's essentially looking at the custodial data outside of 13Fs and looking at the movement, whether it's on a daily basis or a weekly basis, to see where shares are actually moving. So the 13F filings are due 45 days after a quarter end. They don't tell you half the truth, right? They're they're not only what's backwards looking, but they can be multiple months old. But the stock surveillance is looking at a weekly level um, at this custodial movement. And, and one, it's helpful, you know, at a simple level to just see who's buying and selling shares, you know, update your share register, things like that, understand trends. But two, more importantly, you know, the 13Fs, as they don't tell the whole story, whether it's because they're hidden or not, but you can monitor if an activist is building a position. You know, this may be via common shares or derivatives, but you can start to see if an activist is growing a position. And with that, start preparing days, weeks, months prior to the actual filings or prior to uh, outreach, right? So you can take preventative steps, whether it's changes you were already thinking about, you know, moving them up, things like that. But anything to minimize that element of surprise, you know, it really helps companies prepare for that inevitability.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. Uh, you know, Elliott Management, for example, is a, is a good example of an activist that buys large cash shuttle equity swaps these derivatives positions and uses that as leverage at companies and doesn't have to disclose that accumulation in most circumstances with a 13D filing and other activists are accumulating. So that stock surveillance service that you provide sounds really interesting in terms of helping to identify a large activist is accumulating behind the scenes in the shadows. And it's something that I kind of look at with some of these counterparty banks and say, oh, is this counterparty bank is accumulated this (laughs) large human (laughs) brands position? And (laughs) that's it. Is that as a hedge for their derivatives investment with Starboard Value, which showed up at Lumen Brands later on and things like that. So definitely very interesting. Although it'll be interesting if the SEC does require derivatives disclosure, then maybe we'll have more definitive and faster details about the activist investing, that the activist investors that buy derivatives positions, for example. <laughs> okay. So one other page I thought was interesting was your sector categorization page, which raises a question to me. Uh, You know, you kind of look at the different sectors and how busy activists are in those different sectors. And I'm wondering, do you get the sense from your experience in the activism world over the years, whether activists focus on one or a few sectors or are there investments all across the map?
1: Yeah, I I mean, so so for me, I I think most are, are generalists. They tend to be generalists the same way, you know, ISS and Glass Lewis are generalists and they have expertise and they see a lot of repeat stories come up within sectors. But then there are some that are really focused, right? I, I think of Alex Denner and his background with a degree from MIT and a PhD from Yale focused on healthcare. But I do think this helps with the MS40 report is you see over time trends where certain sectors are presenting opportunities through activism, whether it's from loading or m to become attractive targets, right? So I remember earlier this year, I think it was Goldman, they had a great stat that while consumer discretionary makes up 11% of the S&P 500, you know, it's something like 19, 20% of the of activist targets. You know, as a growth sector that was a awash during the cheap money years, becomes a focus for operational changes. So, I, look, I, I do think most are generalists, but, I, you know, it's not surprising that there seems to be a hot sector each year or over, the, over a certain amount of years that certain trends pop up with activists targeting again and again, repeat companies or repeat sectors.
0: And you have even a sub, I'm just looking at the chart now, the sub-industry analysis, like biotechnology seems to have a lot of new activist positions. And some utilities have a lot of activism, top activists, real estate, in terms of top buyers, that I thought was interesting, Page where you see who are the biggest buyers, new positions, biggest increased positions, biggest decreases, liquidations. It's all there in this report. So I strongly recommend checking this out if you're interested in the world of activism. It's a fascinating report. We are out of time. And this has been Ron Orle. You've been listening to the Activist Invested Today podcast with Jeff Weinberg, Managing Director, M&A and Activist Advisory and Head of the Retail Shoulder Advisory Practice at Moro Sodali. Thanks, Jeff, for taking the time. Thanks, Ron. Great to be here.